ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Almost New Year, and the last interview of 2021 is as good of a guest as we could ask for. It's Boog Shambi joining Outside the Box with Jeff Conine. Of course, I'm Aram Layton, Jeff Conine in the red at the bottom. And Boog, thank you for taking the time to join us. Appreciate it, you guys. Uh, it's, it's awesome to be here. It's been a bit of a dead time. Jeff was just playing in an awesome golf tournament in Cabo, which I'm excited to ask you about that a little bit. Obviously, I would have heard about it if you won. But how'd you play? Um, it was dicey uh, for um, a, a good number of holes, but I played. I was su- pleasantly surprised with how I played because um, leading up to it, uh, my golf game has been a disaster. Uh, I went out the, the week of like five times to the driving range, just trying to figure something out. And it was uh, it was literally chaos in my golf swing. So I played with David Howard, who is a good buddy of mine that um I came up with the Royals. He's your guy. He, he's a scratch golfer, man. This guy's as good as they get. So he calmed me down and uh, helped me get through some uh, swing mechanics. But uh, we used a fairly decent amount of my shots because it was a two-man scramble. So I was happy about that. Where are you on the snappage scale? So uh, there was a hole, 18, on the second day where I, I took my driver after I duffed it uh, about 45 feet in front of uh, the tee box. And I had it over my head, and I think that the club head and the handle got down to about the shoulders. And uh, they they talked me out of the tree. They're like, "Serenity, now look at the ocean. Uh, please don't do that. We got another round tomorrow." Uh, Zen, you know. And I, I started hearing fibers creak and crack a little bit because I was ready for it. I was just going to snap the whole thing and be done with the whole tournament. Uh, but lucky I didn't because the next day I drove the ball very well. So the golf gods uh, rewarded me for not snapping my driver over the top of my head. I miss you, buddy. <laughs> so, Boog, did you have to get your golf game up just being in, in the circles, right? I mean, like Jeff has his charity game, his charity tournament. I feel like just being a broadcaster and just being around, you're going to get looped into a lot of these and, you got to be half decent. That was always the nervous thing for me. When I was in college at journalism school, I'm like, every time it's not snowing, I'm getting out and getting my golf game up in case I have to play eventually in Jeff's tournament even. I, so I got to play in Jeff's tournament a number of times, but in terms of your premise, it would be absolutely false. I was terrible. I don't think <laughs> as a kid that grew up in New York City, I don't think I had a golf club in my hand till I was 25. Um my, my college buddy, Bob Washusen, who I was down there with, is really good. He's pretty close to, to scratch. And he would drag me out there. I initially started to try to play right-handed, but I ended up playing left-handed. Um, I don't get out there. I don't get out there very much. But the, the bulk of the time that I played was when I was living in South Florida. Some great golf courses in Chicago. Wow. <laughs> A lot of good golf courses in Chicago. Yeah. Hey, just get that get that black book like all set up, and when I get my game like totally figured out, I'm I'm coming up, and we're gonna go out and play some golf. 
I mean, I, I, I've, I've met some people now, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll sort it out for sure. David <laughs> Howard, by the way, have you ever, do you remember, I'm pretty sure this is true. I think the best baseball catch defensively that I've ever seen in my life is a catch that Jim Edmonds made in Kansas city um, where he dives basically straight yes. back and it's straight over his head onto the warning track. I think yes. it was David Howard that hit it. Ooh, that would have been uh, quite a bolt for David Howard. Um, <laughs> because he, yeah. he, he always says that he, you know, he hit 11 career home runs. So I will ask him though. I'll text yeah. him right now and he'll, and he will get back to me. Okay. I will have that answer within minutes. Okay. I think that that's the case. So if, if not, then, you know, I, I tell whoppers, it's not like I have. <laughs> hey, if that's not, he'll probably say, just go with it. Yeah, I hit it. Okay. <laughs> right. That was one of my favorite catches of all time. And and that's one of those that's like cemented in my mind. Uh, Cause I, you always see the Willie Mays catch, which is, and of course in the context, it's great, yeah. but take that and modernize it to a dive. And, and that's what you got that and Gary Matthews jr. Uh, oh. Over the wall in center field. The, the way his hand turns, he, he, he catches it in a manner where is, if you watch the way he kind of pronates his, his hand, it's, it's an incredible catch and climbing the wall. Yeah. Well, not a bad play that you got to see too. This guy, Jeff made a decent play in Oh three uh, to gun down JT snow coming around third. Obviously we yeah. all know that play exactly. And, you know, I, I don't think, Jeff will ever get sick of telling the story, but I almost feel like, oh my God, I'm bringing it up again, but I don't get sick of watching the video. So there's no way he gets sick of telling the story. Do you, how crystal clear is that game to you uh, in that just special, special season for them? For me? Uh, I should have said Boog. <laughs> <That's my favorite. laughs> I know how crystal clear it is for Jeff. Jeff could tell me what, what the blades of grass looked like and what direction yeah. they were going in. Uh, but I'm curious for Boog. Man, that, that's my favorite baseball season ever. I mean, I think that part of it was, you know, had to do with the people and on that, in terms of that specific play, I, I, the, here's, so here are the two things that think out, that I think about in terms of that specific play. And one is um, that the giants, even though it was a five game, uh, five game series took 12 uh, pitchers, so they didn't have somebody to pinch run for JT Snow, which was odd. And then the other thing that I think is a really neat stat is that is the only out at home plate that has ended a playoff series. Wow. In the history of postseason baseball. I didn't know that. So the so like you've seen playoff series end on a walk-off, but in terms of a playoff series ending on an out at home plate, that is the only one in the history of the playoffs. Did you know so, that, Niner? I did know that. I did know that. That's crazy. Yeah. You think about it. It's a lot of years and a lot, yeah, of, a lot of series. And and just the guy, you know, like, look, for me, the guys on that team, I think that one of the things that was cool was that so many of them were guys I'd known for a long time, guys that were my age. I can remember Mike Lowell got hit on the wrist by, I think it was Hector Almonte hit him. And he broke his wrist and they were immediately trying to call to get Conine. And I was telling, you know, Mike Lowell, Andy Fox, Mike Redman, Brian Banks, all those guys, just how much, you know, they'd love Jeff. And, um, you know, they, they, he, he fit with them so well and was such a huge part of 
delivering big hits. And obviously he and I were, um, you know, we're friends from the first time he was, you know, around with the Marlins as an inaugural Marlin and then that team that won it all in 97. But that 03 team, it's just, it's hard. There was just so much laughing and smiling and that team just had so much fun. Um, I mean, in my hallway here is uh, the, you know, the, the picture of the world series trophy, but the, you know, the R rated two sticks version. <laughs> so yeah, I, I just, I really love that team. It was a you lot. Know, of- we, we, we talked about this earlier and I told Aram that, you know, Oh, they went through a couple of fire sales, but I told them that we had pretty damn good teams in 04 yes. and 05 as well. But I said the piece of the puzzle that left after 03 that I thought was critical was those bench guys. they felt that they could get the same production because Jack managed a team like an American league. He put his eight guys out there every single day. Those guys might see a little bit of action once a week and that's all there was going to be about it. So they thought they could probably get cheaper options on the bench for the guys that Andy Fox, Mike Redmond, Brian Banks, Mike Mordecai, Todd Hollinsworth, all those guys, but didn't realize what an important piece of that puzzle was to our success. And you said it, how much fun we had on the ballpark, at the ballpark every single day, on the bench every single game. I mean, those guys were it. And I think they were the kind of the glue that held us all together and made it loose and made it fun. And that's part of our, the reason why we were so successful. I think the other thing, I'm sure that Jeff has told you every story related to that, to that season. But the one component that I always think about just, from doing so much national work and doing so many Yankee Red Sox games. But the, the funniest thing was in 03, that was the first year of home field advantage hmm. determined by the all-star game. So the American league had home field, our series finished ahead. So Aaron Boone's home run for all the, the talk that Red Sox fans, Yankee fans have about that home run our story as it relates to the Marlins traveling party was watching the game at a hotel in Chicago. It starts to get late. The Red Sox are ahead. Pedro starts to give it up. Now we've got to get on the buses. We go to the airport. We get to the airport. We are not allowed on the tarmac because we don't know where we're going (laughs) because both New York and Boston, whoever wins has home field, but we don't have a destination so we cannot get on the plane. Wow. And we sit there three buses listening to the game on the radio. And John Miller is literally, and there's a deep fly ball left field and it's gone. And the Yankees win the pennant. And the gate starts to open <laughs> the tarmac and get on the yeah. plane. That's right. <laughs> so literally the ball is going over the fence and the gate is shaking open. And we drive onto the tarmac and go get on the plane to fly to New York. Like we we're driving onto the, like action of driving onto the tarmac from waiting outside. He's probably still rounding the bases as we're, <laughs> as we're driving. That's uh, so true. <clears throat> That's unbelievable. And with the way that the team was in 03, and I feel like most players are going to always have this mentality, but it, you didn't really care who you were going to face at that point, right, Jeff? I mean, Yankees, Red Sox, either way, it's a historic franchise in a, in a cool stadium that'll be a tough environment pretty interchangeable for you guys, right? Hadn't even given it a thought. We were just sitting there waiting to see that last out, that last play to see where we were going. And then 
All right, let's go, boys. We're going to New York. It's awesome. That story is is unreal because you don't realize how tight it is on time sometimes. <laughs> like yeah. it really is that much of even going in the postseason with even a day in between. Uh, it's all about just getting to where you need to go so you can get situated and, and be comfortable, which is which is crazy. Uh, obviously, you don't have the home field advantage in the all-star game anymore. I do want to ask you about the most recent all-star game because I was out there for that one. It was right around the time we launched just baseball. We went out and did a little activation in Denver. It was a ton of fun, uh, but there was a lot of historic context to it just from seeing Shohei Otani out there, the buzz you could, it was like palpable. Um, so I'm excited to get to that, but I want to, before that, talk about you and Jeff's origins because you became friends obviously in the beginning when you started in 97, correct? Uh, do you remember your first meeting? Uh, do you remember first getting acclimated with the team, uh, meeting Jeff and, and kind of how you got, you know, intertwined with all the players? So I, I think that part of it though, was that because I moved down there in 1993. So it was sort of the tail end of the inaugural season as a board op producer update guy. And I climbed pretty quickly getting a chance to do updates, part-time talk, that type of thing. And I would, because you, I had a, a pass, this is the truth. You're 23 years old. I had a pass. And back in that time, dinner was free in the press box. <laughs> I mean, I'm not kidding. So, yeah. so during the summer, we went to most of the Marlins games because they fed us. And during, I mean, that changed. I want to say the next season, but, and then the Heat and the Panthers, same type of deal. We're like, that's how we got, we're, how we got fed. We we're, you know, making, you know, making $15,000, $16,000 a year. So I, I feel like, I don't know what Niners version would be, but I feel like because I was on the air, you know, 94, five, six, and then I went away and did a minor league season. I go in the clubhouse. I go meet guys. I, I, I mean, we definitely had. I think he, you knew who I who I was at that point before I became an actual Marlins broadcaster. Um, I may have played as a, like a talk show host played in your tournament like the year before, something like that. So I think that sort of started it. And then we're on the plane all the time. And then seeing each other all the time. And I would say it kind of grew from there, I think. Yeah, I think we did interviews together before you became right. part of the, the broadcast staff. So, yeah. um, and, you know, who doesn't love Boog? He's just one of those personalities and one of those guys that, that a guy like me, my person, I just gravitates towards because it's just a, it's a great interview. It's a comfortable talk uh, conversation. Uh, you know, when you, when you're talking with guys with the media and you want, you gravitate, gravitate toward those people throughout your entire career. Uh, whether it be a, a beat writer uh, that you enjoy talking to and you don't mind giving a scoop to or or one of your favorite interviewers, um, broadcasters, you just love talking to. And Boog was always that guy for me. A hundred percent. You can see it through, you know, a lot of the stories that, that I've seen and that are told. And that that's the biggest part. I feel like, of course, it's all about being able to call the games and and doing all of those things that are so incredible. Like I, you mentioned in a previous interview at what, what makes Vince Scully so amazing, but not everybody can paint a picture with their words the way Vince Scully can. So there's other ways that you can kind of, you know, differentiate yourself. And I think one is really developing that relationship with players. And one of my favorite things I've ever seen, uh, and I'm sure you get this brought up a lot, but it's just one of the things that I think about often is 
He's one of my favorite players of all time, even though he was a rival of Jeff's, uh, a, a friendly rival, Chipper Jones. And that story, of course, of you asking Chipper about pulling the trigger early in the count. I, I, I'm not sure everybody will know that story, even though you know very many might. Uh, I would love for you to just go over that story and hear it from, from your end. Uh, Jeff, are you familiar with this Chipper Jones story with Boog? Oh, you'll love this one then, too. Uh, I would love to hear it again. So uh, it's 2000 and I always forget whether it was eight or nine, but it was he, he was having a difficult he was in a stretch. He was having a very good year. I'm pretty sure it was the year he won the batting title, but he was having a, a, a difficult stretch and he was swinging at the first pitch a ton and just kind of rolling over to second. So it just felt like, it felt like every plate appearance was first pitch swinging roll over to second. So this is when Fangraphs was kind of in its infancy. And I went <laughs> on Fangraphs and I looked and it showed he was seeing the second lowest percentage of first pitch strikes in the majors. Wow. So before a Padres game, I uh, I went down into the clubhouse and I said, why are you swinging at the first pitch so much? Did you know? you see the second lowest percentage of first pitch strikes. And he was surprised. And some of the other guys would listen. Chipper was whatever you think of Chipper, like he was a savant. He had amazing recall. And I could come to him with information like that. It was like putting coins in a machine. And I knew he would give me good stuff. So he was explaining to me that the reason that he swings at the first pitch so much is it's usually the only time he's going to get a fastball. You know, that was back in the, like, there's no such thing as a fastball count anymore, really. But then it was first pitch fastball was kind of standard and he was hunting his heater. So, but we kind of went back and forth and then the conversation had to break up. And I said, but what are you doing it for? If you're not getting a lot of first pitch fast or first pitch fastball or first pitch strikes, I should say. Um, And the conversation had to stop because he had to go take BP. So then the game comes, Tim Stauffer's pitching. Remember Tim Stauffer, he was a first-round pick. He wasn't a hard thrower, um, but he started with the Padres that night. Chipper comes up with two outs and nobody on, and the first pitch splits the plate, and Chipper steps out of the box (laughs) and just shakes his head and looks at me, and Joe Simpson and I lose our minds. And he ends up, he ends up walking. And then as he's coming off the field, like just waving his arms at me, like get out of here. And then we had him on the air a couple of years ago to tell the story. And he was like, you were in my head. He's like, you dictated that at bat. He said, that was so in my head, the idea of what the information you'd given to me. And, but, and I have like a still picture of him looking up at me in the, in the booth. And it, it, the story we retold it on Wednesday night baseball on ESPN. And if you put it into Twitter, like it's probably a minute 40 and it, it's, it's pretty funny. And I give Chipper a ton of credit because um, he, I mean, man, did he laugh about it? Like he laughed, <laughs> he laughed. Hard. But like, you know, look what, what you guys are talking about. Part of my thing is just, I like connecting with guys. I like getting guys stories. And, you know, I mentioned Derek Lee and I have a picture that he sent me. And and like, this is a good example of just sort of the timelessness of it. But Derek's 
story was when he was coming up, he was going to go be um, a basketball player and a baseball player at the University of North Carolina. And he was he was basically drafted out of that um, as the Padres, the Padres drafted him and he came over in the Kevin Brown trade. I think that's right. But so he didn't go to Carolina. So after like a year, I went up to him and I had enough of a relationship. You know, we connected enough where I went up to him and I was like, so, D, I, I wanted to ask you, like, you were going to go to Carolina to play basketball and baseball, right? And he said, yeah. I was like, <clears throat> were you really going to play basketball? Were you going to be one of those cats with, like, no name on the back of your jersey and, like, waving a white towel? And he just, just like, he just, <laughs> like, looked at me like, that's messed up, boog. Like, that you didn't <laughs> ask that. So, fast forward a few years ago, North Carolina's in – the national championship game. And he texts me a picture. He's in full Carolina uniform, waving a white towel. <laughs> and that's my contact picture for Derek Lee. So, but I, you know, it's like, but to forge that type of, I don't know, trust connection. And that's another dude, Niner, like what a, I mean, there are some, some good people on that team, just solid humans. So yes, indeed. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's just, it's, it's part of, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a dork in that. I love baseball and I'm interested in the topic and I'm interested in, in the people. Well, you're a New York guy too, born and raised. Right. And, and you also had an apartment here in New York where I'm yeah. at right now, obviously um, right around the time Jeff got traded to the Mets. And this was a funny story that we stumbled upon. I didn't even realize because Prior to us recording one day, I just had a bad New York City day. It was like my second week here. I took a city bike because it stormed really bad and the subways were flooded. And on the city bike, I lost my wallet. Uh, I I couldn't get into the office where our studio is at to record. I'm texting Jeff like, I'm sorry, I'm going to do one last look for my wallet. And it was it was one of those things. I finally sit down. We're getting ready to record and I'm just a little defeated. And uh I just asked him, I was like, you, you had to come to the city on a dime. How did you adjust? And he goes, oh, well, I actually stayed in Boog Shambi's apartment. I was like, what? <laughs> and that's kind of how I realized that you guys were connected because I had totally you know, forgotten. Uh, and yeah. then I made the connection beyond that, uh, that, you know, my dad, since I was a kid, he grew up a Marlins fan or didn't grow up a Marlins fan. They didn't exist yet, but he raised me a Marlins fan after I was born in 97. And he would always tell me we had one of the best broadcasters, uh, but, you know, we lost. He we went to Atlanta, he went to ESPN. And he, he said it so many times that, you know, I, I remembered it, but I never connected who it was. You know, I never really looked it up. And there was a point in time where it kind of all clicked with me. And I was like, oh, he was talking about Boog Shambi. Uh, so it, it was really cool to have that moment as well. But I want to hear a little bit more of the story of, of you offering the apartment to Jeff. How did that all go down? And ultimately, the context of it was pretty interesting, given that it ended up being the biggest collapse in baseball history. Oh, Wow. Um, yeah, it was. So I, I still had the apartment, but I was my first year doing the Braves and I did national stuff. So September was a mess. Um, you know, the other part of that, because you came from the Reds, right? Yeah. Yeah. The part that was was funniest or not funniest, but the part of that story that was great was I was there the day he was traded to. I don't know whether it was the Braves or ESPN. 
but they traded him. That was an August 31st trade, correct? Correct. And so it was in Cincinnati. And I just wanted to say hey to him. And I because they were looking to trade him, I didn't see him during BP, nothing. I wanted to go say hey. So, I mean, it's an hour to game time. And Rob Butcher takes me downstairs, <laughs> takes me into the clubhouse. Like being in a big league clubhouse at like 6.15 for a 7.05 game is weird. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. So I'm in there. And uh, and the one part that was really funny was Pete McCannon, who was the interim manager, who's a good baseball man and a funny guy. But I, I'm talking with Jeff, and McCannon just walks up and just kind of looks around, and he just looks at Conine, and he goes, I told you we were going to get your ass out of here. <laughs> and so – but what happened was I was just never in New York. At, at, I was in Atlanta and then doing the national – I was never home, so I was like – Dude, just if you need a place, it was at, you know, 10th and University in this awesome area, like the heart of Greenwich Village um, in this really cool old school building. So I said, you know, that'd probably be easy for you. It's a month. I'm not going to be there. And that was that. It was amazing. <laughs> it was really cool. Like you said, old building, but uh, it was right on the corner, right? If I yeah. remember correctly. Yep. I mean, it was perfect. Um, I couldn't ask for a better, better spot to land. And uh, in, I mean, that was quite a, a crazy month. Um, I mean, I only spent two weeks in New York probably because we were on the road the other right. two weeks. But, I mean, we had seven-game lead with 17 to play. And I, I'm thinking, wow, you know, they did me, uh, they did me right. And Cincinnati getting me to New York, I'm going to experience the playoffs in New York with the Mets and – wow, this is going to be just a, a great way to, to close the curtains and end the career. And whew, that was quite a barrage of losses. I was in, I was in Houston with the Braves and we didn't, I are, it was still back in the day where there were multiple networks televised. you know, most teams now have one network televising, but the, it, I guess it, it may have been TBS then if not Peachtree network, but I was flying home and the time that I chose to fly home, we got in and landed at probably, I'm going to say 140 Eastern. And it's like we landed and I was, the what were you down? Seven, nothing in the first inning, like Glavin got lit up and yep. it was like, oh my God, they're, they're going to lose on the last we, day of the season. And we needed help too. I mean, if we would have won that game. Yeah. And the Phillies lost. Then we That's would have right. had a one-game playoff. But still, I mean, it was over <laughs> so quickly. Dontrell was pitching for the Marlins. He uh, ended up breaking uh, Delgado's hand in the first inning with an up-and-in fastball. Oh, wow. And, and I got to play because I wasn't playing. I wasn't starting that game. I probably might have come in later in the game just because we're down so much. Uh, uh, Willie Randolph might have put me in there just to whatever. But right. uh, I was not scheduled to play that game. So, And I, I – told this story to arm. I don't know if I told you've heard this thing, but uh, you know, Matt trainer who was with the Marlins is the most oh, emotional, nice. crazy guy, you know, not crazy, just, he's a great, great guy and very caring and emotional. And so he gets on to first base, he ended up walking or something like that. I'm playing first. And, and he looks at me, and goes, what's up, man. What are you doing? The sausage. I'm like, dude, this is it. And he goes, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm retiring after today. This is my last game I'm ever going to play. And he's like, and the, like the game's going on and he's just like standing there looking at me like almost tearing up. He's like, are, are, are you serious? 
pitch. And he'd come back and he's like, are you serious? And I'm like, yeah, man. He's like, oh my God. Wow. That's pitch. Get ready. Okay. Pitch goes by. So that's so Matt trainer, by the way, I know. Like, I don't know that you could have picked another player that would like engage you quite that way. Cause Maddie was emotional and, and, and you could engage him and stuff like that. So I, I totally could see him being distracted by yes. Wait, seriously today it's ending Wait, today. Like- Oh my, and he almost like started tearing up and I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's okay, dude. I'm, I've been thinking about this the whole season, so I'm fine. It's okay. You don't have to get emotional about it. Wow. So anyway, you know, I hadn't played much at all in the last couple of weeks. I was slow and struggling. And so I had to face Matt Lindstrom in the ninth inning. And this guy is throwing a hundred when a hundred really meant something. I mean, yeah. like nobody threw a hundred back then. Very few. Yeah. So I see the first pitch go by me and I was just like, oh shit. Uh, I, I got to start my swing when he drops the rosin bag because that's what I felt like I had to do to get catch up to this thing. So I don't know if I said something, I'm like, oh shit. And then, so the next pitch I hear behind me <clears throat> and I'm like, all right, here comes a slider. And I'm like, oh, all right. This might give me a fighting chance. <laughs> So the next pitch, nothing, right? Fastball. I fouled it back. Next pitch, here comes another slider. I'm like, all right, it's two and two. Next pitch, nothing. He doesn't say anything. So I'm like, here comes a fastball. I I mean, I'm just going to start swinging. I mean, hopefully I make contact. And I ended up popping it up. But uh, that was one of the... That was one of the coolest things ever. You know, they were up by so much that the game meant nothing. And... Uh, but I, I'll never forget that. That was just like, wait, is he telling me what's coming? Yeah. And it still didn't help me. <laughs> right. That's how bad I was. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's one of my favorite stories. You, you didn't tell me that one until recently. When, when I was at your house yeah. last time, we were, we were in town. I didn't know that story. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. But, you know, Matt Trainer seemed to always be one of those fan favorite guys, too. So it's, it's, it's funny yeah. seeing on the inside. Having, you know, I obviously never met him, but you all having kind of that same takeaway that people assume uh, from some of the players from the outside, but sometimes it doesn't always line up. Uh, yeah. But I wanted to ask you, Boog, specifically, you know, now your first season in Chicago, uh, that that was a really exciting move. Obviously, the timing is is a little bit funny with the, everything going on in the world, but we had a relatively normal season in 2021. But I'm sure you've talked about it a little bit, but I just love to know what was ultimately the catalyst and deciding to move from network to back to a local team. Obviously this is one of the biggest local teams and historic, uh, but, but what was the, the big driver behind that decision? I don't know that I would say that there is one, right? I, I think that it's kind of mo- multiple things. I, I will say that, that I think the headliner would be it's the Cubs. Yeah. So I think I had a lot of people asking me, so you really wanted to get back to doing it every day. And I don't know that, and the answer is not yes. It was, I mean, I I thought about it, but I was interested in getting a chance to do it every day for, you know, a team that's that relevant and they're relevant, whether they're good or they're bad. They have a huge fan base. They play in an unbelievable ballpark in an amazing city. So I think that that was kind of the starting point. And then, you know, there's, there are subtleties in terms of, you know, baseball gets a bad rap for not 
not being sort of forward thinking, but the reality is, you know, baseball was streaming its games way before any of the other sports. And because of that, it really moved away from, you know, the viability of, of national broadcasts changed so that you got to this place where, man, if you had a hundred bucks on the app, crystal clear, and you live in Seattle and you're a Cincinnati Reds fan, you can watch every Reds game. Yep. So I think that one of the things that's happened is because of the access, it's become a more regional sport. You know, you're a bit like, so I, I always cringe when people talk about World Series ratings as a way to discuss the popularity of the sport, because I just don't think it's the same as all the other sports. You know, if you're a, a Mariners fan, you want to see the Mariners get in. And I think for the most part, if the Mariners don't get in, you don't really give a crap. And I, I think that and, and it's moved in that direction. So, you know, I knew ESPN was going to be shrinking the amount of games it was doing. You know, I still keep my hand in it by um, by doing some probably I did about 20 of the Sunday night baseball games on the radio. I did, you know, most of the playoffs on the radio up to the World Series, and then Shulman does that. I'd love to get a chance to call the World Series. I call the All-Star game, but I knew the direction it was going in, so it was kind of a – it was a, a, a bunch of different things, but I, I couldn't have enjoyed it more because it's a really cool fan base. Um, it's a passionate fan base, and again, to you know, there's a uniqueness to – Daytime baseball. Hmm. I think the other part, too, is that inside the game, I mean, Niner, one of the things that hasn't changed is Cubs at home on Friday. They play at 120. They're, they're the game that is on in every single clubhouse. And it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the Cubs are just, it's a big deal. So, and obviously, the run of success they had, winning it all in 16, um, it just felt like a, you know, the right move. And obviously the guy that left, um, who I, by the way, just had lunch with today, Len Casper, um, you know, he, he, he had, people were confused by his move, but he'd always had a bug to do radio. He had seen the greatest event in the history of the franchise. Like no matter what I want to say, I am, I am not going to preside over a bigger event than 2016. It just ain't going to happen. You know what I'm saying? It's just not. And then I think that the fact that he didn't have to leave the market, it just kind of worked for him and he was ready. And I give him a lot of credit because it takes courage. What's interesting is that he had told me he was thinking about it a while ago and I never even contemplated, hmm, maybe that's a place that I'd want to go. I just didn't. I wish I could tell you why. I'm an idiot, maybe part of it, but I, I just didn't. And he, we didn't really talk about it. I was talking to him as my friend. And then it was announced. And then the Cubs and Marquee called me. And it's just, it's worked out really great. You know, I'm working in a city with one of my best friends. And um, the Cubs have been awesome. And their fans have been awesome. You know, it's, look, I didn't come in trying to be Cubs expert. Chicago expert. Hopefully I can be here for a long time and, you know, slowly over time as I continue to learn the city. Look, I know the city, but not the way the people that grew up here know the city. 
So I just think, you know, I came in just trying to be patient and um, look, in the end, people are going to remember the times when the team's really good. And I'm excited for that. It comes full circle, right? You know, when you go, uh, I tell the old two sticks breakfast in Puerto Rico and who, who did I have breakfast with? Yeah. You and Len. That's right. You and Len. And yep. I'm like, I didn't know anybody. And I'm telling the whole story about, yeah, they told me to come down to the lobby and meet him for breakfast. And I got down there and crickets, man. I get in <laughs> and Boog's like, Boog's like, it doesn't sound like them, man. It's a, that doesn't sound like something they would do. And I'm like, well, they did it. And I was pissed. And then all yep. of a sudden they come sauntering by outside the window, outside the window, outside the window. I'm like, yeah, there they are right there. Are you kidding yep. me? I got your two sticks. Yeah. What's two sticks right there. <laughs> so for, for you as a player, Jeff, is there, was there ever that kind of pull to ever play for a team that you didn't get a chance to play for? I know you were excited about the idea of playing postseason baseball in New York at the end there. Uh, but, you know, I think that's something that's kind of a commonality across broadcasters and players to a degree is, you know, the historic franchises, there's just something different of being able to either call games for that franchise in that stadium or, or be able to don their Jersey. Was there ever a pull to, or ever a desire to, to go call or to go play games for a historic team? Sure. I mean, you know, when you talk about as a visitor going into a certain number of places that the Cubs, the Cardinals, um, I always felt that those were the two best fan bases. And I guess it doesn't, uh, there's no coincidence that they're pretty close ge geographically, but um, as far as a passionate fan base that wanted to see great baseball, those two are the best in my mind of any of the other stadiums ever played in Cubs. They were a little bit like St. Louis would sit on their hands the whole game. They're very polite. They really don't rag on you anything like that. And they would, if you made a great play, they would cheer for you. The Cubs, they're on you from inning number one. They're screaming at you. They got chants going in the uh, in the bleachers. Uh, you know, fee five fo fum. Conan is a fucking bum. They would do that every game. They throw shit at you when you go in the corner. I got beer dumped on me in the corner. But if I lay out, and make a great catch, they're gonna applaud that. They're like, hey, damn, all right, yeah, you suck, Conan. You're terrible. But they would they would they would applaud that. And to see the support that those players had from their fans. That's why we don a uniform. That's part of it is to go out there and we're entertainers. We entertain for these people that come out and pay their money to watch us play every night and to have that kind of support. And uh, it, it's hard to describe, you know, the, the kind of adoration that the Chicago people have for those Cubs players, the Red Sox fans have for the Red Sox, the St. Louis fans had for the Cardinals. I mean, that is something that I think we all long for. And if any of one of those teams ever would have called me to play, I would have been honored to go play there. You played too. I, I think if they ever got good again, but I mean, Baltimore isn't, it may not be, it's not Chicago or St. Louis, but like that's a market that when, you know, they had a lot of success, they had a big time star that you played with. Um, and their fans, Love it. And they play in an iconic ballpark. So, I mean, that's, that's a pretty passionate market that you get a chance to play in there. It did. It was early on. And I, you know, I went back recently um, and, you know, it's a shame to see what it is now. Uh, like you said, I play with Cal. Yep. I got there in 99 and, you know, we're getting 44,000 a game. Um, and I still, people always ask me what your favorite ballpark to play in. 
first ones, Camden Yards. I, I just absolutely love that ballpark. I love that city. Um, I love being a part of uh, that Baltimore, you know, tradition and and history. Um, like, like you said, it's storied. That's a storied franchise. And um, yeah, that's that was a, a fun place to play. I really enjoyed it. You know, I'm just looking over your shoulder, and I realize I see the uh, the locker plate for the '95 All Star game. That's right. <laughs> I, I was at that All Star game. I don't know if you remember that, but you hit the home run. Was it against Steve Taveros? Yeah, yeah. So you hit wow. the home run. You were the MVP. And I had a press pass to get, and I went down to say congratulations to you. I just jumped into, jumped into my head, or I got to see in Arlington. But I was sitting up in the auxiliary press box in, like, it was, I think it was in, like, Irving, Texas. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was far away. But, I, yeah, when you hit the homer against him, that's right. What was your favorite All-Star game, aside from, from the one that Jeff hit the homer and was MVP? Is there one that stands out to you that you just enjoy? <laughs> of course, more, that's number more? one. Yeah, yeah, that's number one. So what's the runner up there? Because uh, I feel like there's there's a lot of games that kind of blend in together, but there's got to be right. a couple that that stand out. So I let me start by telling you this. I'm rare. I know in 2021 it's not, but I still think the baseball all-star game is still different than the other three all-star games. I still love calling the all-star game because the one thing about it compared to the NBA or the NFL is that when pitcher is facing hitter, they are still at that game trying to do it every pitch at the exact level they try and do it during the regular season. No one's not trying. And then the thing, the thing that you really notice is how clean it is. It, it like nobody comes in and poops their pants and sprays it all over the place. Everybody comes in and it's like strike one, strike two. And you hit it too short, you're out. I mean, it's just clean. And the amount of talent on the field is just really neat. So I, I think I, I will say that when I, I did this first one I did was 2010 in Anaheim and Brian McCann was the MVP and the national league won for the first time in forever. I was there. Were you? I, I was there. My father and I were trying to go to all 30 baseball stadiums uh, wow. before I graduated college. And we did a West coast trip going straight down. Uh, Cause we were like, he's like, we got to get on our horse. I was obviously still young then. I was 13, but he's like, we gotta, yeah. we gotta get it up here. We were doing the math. And uh, we went all the way, started in Seattle, went all the way down and it timed up perfectly with the all-star game in Anaheim. And I remember because Josh Johnson was there. I believe Hanley Ramirez would have been there too. Uh, Maybe not Hanley, but definitely Josh Johnson. I remember vividly, but yeah, I just had to mention that because that, that stadium is, is cool. uh, But they were still Anaheim then. And, and it was, uh, it was a cool experience. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, I, I don't know that there's, that there's one single game i just have always liked doing it the next year was in arizona prince fielder was the mvp i believe and i know this this is play-by-play dorkiness but the one thing that i remember the most and that i enjoyed was yeah prince hit i think a three-run homer and it hit the top of the fence and went out and i nailed the call like (laughs) and you know when you're if you're not locked in 
and the ball hits the top of the fence from, you know, from where we are 500 feet away, not always so easy to see and to like incorporate it into the call like that. I remember that, that felt, that felt good. So (laughs) I don't know. I just still really like calling the all-star game, you know, for me to, even I like I have my card right back here, my all-star game card from this past year. And to have Otani leading off for the top of my scorecard and then on the flip side, have him in the pitcher spot. I don't know. Just cool. That's cool. It was really cool this year. We got like I mentioned, we got to go to that one. And, and I was actively te- texting Jeff throughout the whole thing. Just wanted his thoughts on some of the guys, just especially watching the Derby. And I think you talk about the MLB all-star game. I think the home run Derby is one of the best spectacles in sports as well, because the dunk contest is great, but LeBron's not doing the dunk contest. You know, Jordan used to do it back in the day, but you don't get the big name players doing it. The home run Derby, you're getting some of baseball's biggest names and Shohei Otani, obviously being one of them there. And everybody was buzzing. His batting practice was a joke. I've never heard anybody uh, just make an impact on the baseball with, with a different kind of sound than Otani did. Uh, but then he gets into the the round and it seemed like there was a little bit of nerves and uh, he was, he was yanking a little bit. I think he was even pulled a couple foul. And I think it was just a little bit of the human aspect to him because he's doing something that was just not human at all. And yep. for the whole season, and now he shows a little bit of humanity, but then ends up finishing really strong. Did you feel anything different in that all-star game with the spectacle of Shohei Otani? It felt like it to me a little bit, but I don't have as much of the the context over more years of all-star games that you had. Did you feel like Shohei was bringing a little bit of a different component than we've ever Well, there was a buzz. I mean, there was a buzz to it that, I mean, here's what I think that um, it's hard because he didn't do, he didn't actually do anything remarkable in it. I'm not sure, but I, I will say if he had gone one, two, three, struck out the side and homered to lead off the game, like that would be talked about till forever. And I still would say, you know, 25 years from now, when you tell your kid that a guy started on the mound and was throwing 97 and he was the leadoff hitter, you're going to be, your kids are going to be like, huh? (laughs) So I think while, I think more than anything, it's just that while it was happening, I was really acutely aware of just how unique this was and that there was, you know, unique insofar as he deserved both spots that he, he was a monster on the mound and at the plate. So I, I thought that that part was um, was pretty. I think it was more anticipatory. Man, if he does something huge here, this this will be a real marking point for. I mean, that he had an opportunity. Look, it's hard, but if he had hit a homer to lead off the game, um, and and done something else, it would have been one of the biggest moments in the history of that game. Yeah. hundred percent. And Jeff, can you talk about the nerves even just for someone who's not leading off and starting on the mound in an all-star game? Cause obviously you, you, you were in two of them. You didn't get to get into it the first time. Then you, you had to jump in at the end and, and really just 
I, it was sink or swim basically. And, and obviously you swam. What, what are the nerves like in that kind of game? Cause yes, it mattered a little bit at the time with, with home field advantage, but ultimately it's more just about the stage, right? How did that kind of come about with you and how are you able to manage those nerves? Well, I mean, you know, I was the, my first one, I had one full season under my belt. So I go to the 94 all-star game and, you know, you walk into that clubhouse and see those jerseys that are hanging around that locker room. And you're like, I do not belong here. I mean, it was, it's like Boog said, it's the best of the best. And, you know, Tony Gwynn and Barry Bonds and Fred McGriff and all these, they're my teammates for this one game, you know, and it's like, it was a little overwhelming for, you know, a young player that had only been a year in the big leagues. And, you know, you try to, it's just like any big thing in the postseason, you know, you've got those nerves uh, opening day, you've got those nerves, but you rely on your, you know, your training. And I know it sounds stupid, but you rely on what you've done your whole life. And mentally you got to go back to that because if you focus on the surroundings and who's there and the hugeness of the situation, you're going to, you're going to fail. I mean, you're going <laughs> to, you're going to be so nervous. You won't be able to perform. So, you know, I knew that Moise or uh, Philippe Lou said for the second game, he goes, Hey, everyone's playing. Everyone's getting this game because he actually went to an all-star game and he didn't get to play. So he said, if he ever got to manage an all-star game, everyone's getting into the game. So I knew I was going to get in at some point. And, uh, you know, I'm on deck uh, when Ron Gant is up. I'm going to pinch hit uh, for Fred. No, uh, I was going to pinch hit for Ron Gant. Fred McGriff is at the plate. So I'm on deck pinch hitting for Ron Gant. And Fred McGriff's up there. It's two outs. And he ends up striking out in the top of the seventh. So I'm like, oh, God, now I got to go back in the dugout. I got to go back in the dugout and, and get myself ready for the top of the eighth. So Matt Williams is standing there and, you know, he's watching whoever's warming up in the bullpen. I'm like, what do you got for me, man? I know nothing about the American league guys. And, you know, with the, the Bay series they had between the Oakland A's and the San Francisco giants, he knew Ontiveros fairly well. He's like, listen, this guy loves his cutter. He is fastball is a cutter. He loves throwing that cutter. And he goes, that's what I would look for. I'm like, all right. So I go up to the plate and that first pitch, sure enough, I'm taking all the way, but it was a cutter. And I'm like, all right. And it was a ball. So I'm one to i I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to back up, you know, try to collect myself. Let's take another pitch, you know, just take another one. You're still even in the count if he throws a strike. And as I'm stepping in, I'm like, no, screw that, man. If he throws a strike, you got to be ready to hit it. And sure enough, he threw the cutter again, right down the middle. And, and, uh, and I was just floating around the bases. I mean, that is just like, you know, if you can't do it in a postseason series, I think the enormity of that game and the eyeballs that are on you and the hoopla surrounding it, that's probably the best game you can hit a homer in. Absolutely. And what about for you, Boog? You know, I mean, it, it's very similar in terms of the stage, the nerves, the pressure. You're always working towards having the opportunity to call an all-star game. Obviously, you, you've gotten a little bit more comfortable with it now, but right. how did you manage those nerves and those expectations and, and being on that big stage did you feel it or did you kind of just kick into game mode once once it got going? You know, it's funny. The one thing I will say about calling the All-Star game that's cool to me is that I can remember being at like a baseball camp and listening to the All-Star game on the radio and listening to either, I think it might have been Ernie Harwell, but I can remember listening to Vince Scully as well. And it, I try to remind myself that like I'm getting a chance to do that, the, you know, that, you know, these guys were legends and now I'm getting to do it. So I, 
I think that once you're in the mode of describing what you're seeing, I've said this, and I, I think as I've gotten older, I probably appreciate it more. But one of the things, especially doing baseball on the radio, it's kind of a gift, you know that that I you, that it's a gift to be able to to get a chance to do it. And part of the cool thing is it's it's a full exercise in mindfulness. Like if you meditate at all, it's impossible to call the game. And exchange the and 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 engage the nonsense conversation in the back of your head. Yeah, no like way. You can't call and describe what you're seeing and think about like you know, did I leave the coffee maker on? Is the garage door open? <laughs> um, you know, what should I eat afterwards? Like you just can't, and you just kind of click into it, and that part is it's pretty amazing because it it means that you know you're. You're fully present. And it doesn't mean, I mean, look, I'm, I've clanked enough calls to last a lifetime too. You know, you're not, you're just not going to be perfect on all of them, but I don't think, I don't think uh, the pressure in the moment is, is something that I really contemplate. You know, I don't, I don't think you contemplate how many people are listening or how many people are watching, or at least I don't. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to be perfect, you know, but I think you just try and just try and do you, you want to present, you know, authentic you as much as you can. I know that word gets used a lot, but I think that that's the, you know, the way you go about doing it and, um, and try and make sure you enjoy it. That's, that's for damn sure. Well, well I think that's, that's, that's a gift that, you know, the great ones have. You know, that's a gift that the great ones have. You know that they enjoy it. You know that they're authentic. You know that <clears throat> they are, um, you know, like they're almost like one of your friends that you're listening to. And uh, I think that's what differentiates, you know, the great from the good. Yeah, I mean, I I, I hope I, to, I, I, I had to listen to Vince Scully all the time because my dad was a Dodgers fan. So yeah. <clears throat> growing up, he had the TV on all the time. I wasn't really a baseball fan, but I heard Vin Scully's voice yeah. all the time. And when I finally got to meet Vin Scully, when we, I was playing the big leagues and I'm like, holy crap, this guy is, it doesn't get any better than Vin Scully in, in my mind. Yeah. It's it, the ability to, to tell a story. I mean, he just, yeah, everything to tell a story. There's, there's a cadence to the way that he did it. You know, the joke in, you know, broadcaster world. And I, it's a shame because it, it'll be, uh, you know, eventually it'll be lost on, you know, a generation of broadcasters, but like, there's a joke in, in broadcasters of my age that like, you know, you don't tell a story with two outs, except for Vin. If Vin wanted to tell a story for two outs, the player would foul off pitches until <laughs> Vin was done with the story. Like that was our joke that like Vin could do it. If Vin decided two outs, then Adrian Gonzalez is going to just foul off pitches until Vin was done, and then the play would, <laughs> would end. Um, but there's just a warmth to the way he did it. And then I, the, the first the, – the really first time that I could remember appreciating, you know, sort of the painting the picture on the radio, I was – Boston College and I was working a, a job as a security guard and I was listening to the 91 World Series on the on the radio and Vin was doing it and 
It was the Braves and the Twins. And I just remember it just stopped me because it was so perfect. But Rafael Belliard either singled or walked, but he's on first. And Vince Scully described Rafael Belliard, who was a tiny little infielder um, standing next to Kent Herbeck, who was a big dude. And Vin, and pardon the shitty Vince Scully impersonation, but Vin's line was, so there's Belliard looking like something that fell out of Herbie's pocket. <laughs> and to come up with that, in right. terms of describing the size disparity in the moment, it's just one of those where you just kind of bow and you just say, wow, that's, and I, and, and I, I mean, that was me at 21, 20 years old. And I was, and it stopped me right there that he, that he could just, it just made, put a big smile on my face. And I was like, wow, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's 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 one of the that's one of the most clever things I think I've, yeah. ever, I've ever heard. And before we get to to Jeff's jersey, uh, I did hear a story, and this is a, another legend in the booth. You told a story on uh, Parkinson Spiegel about, I believe it was Harry Carey, yeah. and and an interaction you had with him. Would you be willing to tell that story again? Yes, I would. Because uh, yes, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that story. Well, the best is I'm pretty sure. Jeff played in the game. So I think it was our, our first road trip in 97 was Chicago. Um, it was the coldest game ever played at Wrigley field up to that point. Okay. So here's the story. So I am doing the pregame show. I finish the pregame show. Do you want me to do the, the whole version or do you want me to edit it? No, you can, you can let her rip. All right. <laughs> um, so I finished the pregame show and I have to use the facilities. So, and it's freezing, freezing. 23 degrees at game time. Oh. So I, I have two and a half minutes to go use the bathroom, come back, and I got to do lineups. My first ever road game, ever. And then I, you know, so I, I run to the bathroom. I, I use the... Uh, the facilities real quick. I'm washing my hands as I'm washing my hands in an empty restroom. The Wrigley field uh, restroom was the same for years, two urinals in a stall. As I'm washing my hands, Harry Carey walks in, goes to the stall. As I'm drying my hands from the stall, Harry Carey says out loud, not to me. Okay. It's just a <laughs> comment. And, and the comment is I got so many damn clothes on. I can't find my dick. <laughs> and I was like drying my hands. And I was like, what? <laughs> what and I burst out laughing. And then I ran back to the booth to tell <laughs> Dave O'Brien and Joe Angel. <laughs> and that was my Harry Carey encounter. Like he wasn't talking to me. If I hadn't been there, he still would have said it. <laughs> it was incredible. And so, I mean, and, and it, I mean, I swear to you that happened, but it was, <laughs> oh my gosh, it was amazing. So, yeah. So that, that kind of leads me into one last question before the Jersey. Sorry I, for each of you. Cause I think it applies both ways. 
for Jeff first, who was like the first player? I think I know who it is. I think we, we may have asked it before, but who was like that first player where you're like, holy crap, I'm a big leaguer. I'm in the same realm as these guys. I'm going to guess George Brett, but maybe it was somebody before that. No, um, you know, I got called up after our double a championship and I'm in Kansas city on a day game and uh, our luggage had gotten late getting to the ballpark. And I'm basically, we had show and go. There was no batting practice late in the season. The Royals are out of it. So I come down to the bench, you know, I just basically sit on the bench and I mean, I got, George Brett on one side and Bo Jackson on the other. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I'm like, Holy crap. I mean, what is going on right now? And Willie Wilson, I mean, this was a veteran team. Like you wouldn't believe, you know, Willie Wilson was our center fielder. Danny Tartable was in right. Uh, Brett Saberhagen, Mark Gubazov, Jeff Montgomery, Storm Davis, um, you know, Kevin Seitzer, Bob Boone was the catcher back then. I mean, it was crazy what, this team had on it. And, you know, it's like you said, you know, the, the minor league guys always talked about, you know, wait, you get up there and you get in front of those waterfalls guys, you know, I mean, and it was one of the most beautiful stadiums to this day. I mean, they've redone it and everything like that. But even back then when it was first, the first time I saw it, when it was turf, that awful turf and everything, but it was just a gorgeous ballpark. And that day will be forever imprinted in my brain. And George Barrett was it for me. That was, that was the guy. That's cool. What about for you, Boog? Uh, what, what was your your one moment where you're like, "Wow, I'm here"? I don't know. But I, I... First interview with me, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> right now. <laughs> right now. Um, I think. I mean, I think one that stands out is that even though I, I grew up in New York, I was born in Philadelphia, and I and I I loved all the Phillies teams. So Mike Schmidt was my favorite player, and Harry Callis was my guy. And I just, I remember I was online for dinner at Joe Robbie stadium then. And the guy that was in front of me, I was, you know, facing away. And I just remember being online and hearing, I'll have some lasagnas. (laughs) I was like, Oh my God. And then, you know, I mustered up the courage to say hi. And you feel like, your exchange, you feel as though you're sitting there and it's like, hi, Harry, my name is John Shiny. <laughs> that because he had the pipes that were, you know, amazing. So he was there when I, I was there. Yeah. I mean, so I, I just, yeah, that guy, I mean, the times that I got to, to meet Vin, I would say in 97 as well. Um, we played at tiger stadium and I got to meet Ernie Harwell and I met him. And then when I came in the next day, as I walked past the tiger's booth, he popped out and he said, Hey, John, how are you? And I was just floating. I think he remembered my name and that it's that type of stuff, you know, that's, that's awesome. And speaking of names, hold um, on. Oh, what do we got? Oh, it is David Howard, isn't it? David Howard. Oh, it was David Howard. There's the catch. That, that catch. So if you haven't right. seen that catch, that catch, that's amazing. I don't know why I remember that. That catch is, oh my gosh. Yeah, crazy. <clears throat> yeah. So your recall is just, I mean, that that's a distinct quality in broadcasters. Your recall is pretty absurd. 
I think it's getting worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you I, do I, any like Sudoku puzzles or? Nah, I don't. Here, you want to see another good catch? I yeah. just came. I came across this randomly no. one day. Oh. Oh. Wow. That's a young niner. Wow. Oh my gosh. I didn't know you did one of those. I. Oh, and oh, did and you, do you yard? yard? Yeah, then it went deep. <clears throat> what was those... that pitch? Mm. It was a knuckleball. knuckleball. <laughs> I was De- like, was Dennis that a position player? <laughs> no, it was Dennis yeah. Springer. Uh, Springer, yeah. So I, I yell at my bullpen because they're all lined up. That's our bullpen. And I'm thinking, I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. I'm like, I've got my eyes on this ball. I'm like, well, they're going to tell me if I'm getting, I got to be getting close to the wall. And it was a short wall. So it's a dangerous flip, you know? So I said, they're not saying anything. So I saw the ball. I reached out for it. And as soon as it hit my, the instant it hit my glove, I get chop blocked and I go down. So I flip over. And as I land on my shoulder, my neck, I hear my neck crack, like chiropractor crack. Like, and I'm thinking, did it break or was I just getting adjusted? So I kind of stood up and I'm like, nope, everything seems to be working. I can move my arms. And I start yelling at my bullpen. Like, you motherfucker, you tell me I was going to go. You would have made that catch if we told you, you were coming out. You're fine. You're going to be on ESPN tonight. So, so there, we had quite a quite a good exchange. Well, I, I was going to ask you too because the look on your face, like you've just made this great catch, and you're and the look on your face is really more like seriously, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it was seriously, guys. And M, can I still move my hands and my arms and my legs? Everything's working. All right, everything's good. And that was in the drop, right? Yeah. So you, you could track that ball with the white roof? <laughs> well, you had to. I couldn't take my eyes off it. Oh, my God. That's, that's the biggest thing. I couldn't take my eyes off and look for the wall. I had to keep my eye on that ball. Can you believe that 20 years later, we were still talking about the trot, you know, towards the end of the season and, and just balls getting stuck in the, in the roof and all that good stuff? Uh, it's unbelievable. They made it for baseball. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like they made it for something else. Like, what were you doing? Who made it? Like, <laughs> I, that's the craziest part. It was, it was made so that – Either the I think so that the White Sox would move the, or no so that the Giants, Giants. Would move it was there? the Giants yeah yeah I, I just I, I can't understand the white roof component well I, Metrodome was the same way that wasn't yeah. for baseball but that was even worse gosh that that and the turf just not realizing how terrible the turf was for for players at the time turf there, there was now, no turf now is fine like yeah it's great. Now, Almost simulates, it's basically like simulates grass, but like that was basically concrete and like, let's put a bath mat over it. <laughs> a Brillo pad. It was like, like Doug, Doug Glanville tells a story about at three rivers, like making a catch and like skinning both his glove uh, wrist and his bare hand and like uh, having to get a tetanus shot. Oh, uh. Yeah, I, I wore off all the skin right here, diving wow. for a ball in Kansas City. It burned through both knees on my uniform, like melted the nylon. It was during a day game, and I dove for a ball that I shouldn't have d- dove for because Kevin Apier had a no-hitter, and I thought, I got to catch this ball. But I dive, and it's five feet from me, not even close. Right. And I put my hands out to <laughs> put the brakes on, and I'm like, ah! I had a blister this big on my hand, and both knees were Bleeding, literally bleeding, because I had holes this big in my uniform. Oh. Did you ever check off a, a no-hitter off the list through all your years? 
so I did not to, sorry to be, uh, you know, to do the dig me, but uh, I got to call Roy Halladay's postseason no hitter. Oh, wow. Okay. So that, that's the one that, that's my, that, you know, stands out. And then I was there for Kevin Brown's in San Francisco, but I didn't call any of it. I was just doing pre and post. And then I called Jake Arietta's on Sunday night baseball. I called AJ Burnett's, but I feel like I have maybe a couple others, but the, the holiday yeah, in, say, in the playoffs, that's gotta be the best. I mean, I remember where I was watching that one. Yeah. Uh, and the hardest funny. hit ball in that game was Travis Wood, the pitcher lined to right. And the only reason it wasn't a perfect game, he got ahead of Votto 0 and 2 and walked him. Wow. How much are you thinking about like what you're going to say on the last out? Are you really just trusting that whatever comes out is going to be the right thing? I think it depends, but I'll tell you this. And I swear I'm not this guy. I like one of the things I love Jack McKeon, but one of the things with Jack McKeon was like, if a UFO landed on the field in the fourth inning, in the post game, Jack would get around to telling you he had a pretty good idea that a UFO was going to land on the field. <laughs> and like, but, and, and the Halliday no hitter after about three innings, I was sitting there going, wow, he's going to throw a no hitter. Yeah. Like wow. it was like, oh, this is done. So in that spot, <coughs> He's just dominating so much that you've created this narrative in your head. You want to be sharp, but it's hard not to think about what you're going to say because only one other guy's ever thrown it and you feel pretty convinced that he's going to do it. So I I think you're just trying to punch it. You know what I mean? You're just really trying to punch, you know, the moment and the excitement and then, just kind of get out of the way a little bit. Of course. So I definitely lean towards being, you know, more of a minimalist, I would say. Your game, your game five call was one of the greatest of all time. Gonzo's <clears throat> walk off. I got to, yeah, that, that was really cool to be able to, that was cool. The one that snuck over the little corner in, yeah, in left yeah. field. That was always the funniest dimension to me because 10 feet this way, it's, it's a double. Yeah. But if you sneak it over there in that black area in the left yeah. corner, it's a dinger. And it was right in that perfect spot. Is that your favorite call of all time? I know it's a little, I know, I know it's weird asking a broadcaster what their favorite call of themselves is, but there's gotta be one where like you mentioned the all-star game. I nailed that. Like right. there's gotta be one where you're like, you feel really proud of that one. Right. I mean, I think the, the thing about it is, Yes, I would say yes, but on multiple levels, right? So, and this is more dorkiness, but, you know, it's like, it's still early in my career. I don't know when I became old guy, by the way. (laughs) You probably have, you can, you get to be the judge on that one. But I, I, but like, I, they put that call on a bottle opener and sold it at Bed Bath & Beyond for like (laughs) a year yeah. And, I, and I would just buy them up and send them to people for Christmas gifts <laughs> like, as a like, how you doing? You know, and then like, <laughs> I still like every once in a while, one of them still is active and someone will pop a bottle 
um, and and send it to me. So yeah, that I mean, look that that was a huge home run. A walk off World Series home run is pretty unique, and you know, part of that against the Yankees. Yeah, it was awesome. Well, it's Jersey time, I think, Jeff. Yes. Let's give us at least show us the team on the front, and then we'll we'll, we'll let it rip. Obviously, I, don't know, I, I just I was gonna play it again because I love it so much. But uh... all right, so. Okay, I had a feeling it was going to be a Cleveland jersey. So that's all you get hint-wise. I think the jersey gives you context of years, right? Yep. So I, I, I so you come on the screen, and my first thought is, um, are you wearing a Blackhawks jersey? And then, <laughs> and then Chicago guy now. You just peeked up a tiny bit, and it got me thinking. So you've got to be wearing a Boog Powell jersey, no? No. Oh, that's a good guess, though, given the, given the circumstances. Um, so then Frank Robinson? Frank Robinson was on the Indians? Wow. Well, he was the manager. Oh. He was yeah, the player right. manager. No, nope, he was a player. Um, player. Dwayne Kuyper? Nope. Um, it was a pitcher. Oh, wow. <laughs> but he wasn't – he didn't become – really famous from the Indians. He became famous somewhere else. Okay. Dennis Eckersley? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Wow. That's impressive. That's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> that is gorgeous. The Eck. That's a really great jersey. Oh, yeah. my God, is that a great jersey? Uh, All right, so I needed a few guesses, but that's that's a great, by the way, that is a great bit to do. Oh, it's, it was Jeff's idea. Oh, my I can't God. take any credit. I can't take any credit. It was Jeff's idea. It's, it's, it's really fun. But sometimes he makes it super easy, and then sometimes it's impossible, and I don't know where yeah. to guess. But that was – there's no shot I would have got that. <laughs> is uh, that signed? Yeah. Oh. They're all signed. I mean, as you can see, I got – Yeah, you oh, got a couple. Oh, Boog, you could spend two weeks in there. It's crazy. Oh my God. Every time I come over, I just go through the jerseys and I, I still haven't gotten through all of them. And I, I, mean, you know, I probably got 40 more underneath the cabinet that I don't even have out. <clears throat> so usually yeah. we do like a minute or two on, on the player and Eckersley, honestly, is someone I never associated with, with Cleveland. I, yeah. I always associated him. He was with a starter Oakland. when he was with Cleveland yeah. and then he yeah. became a closer with the A's. At what point did, did he like really kind of hit that stride? Was it immediately in the move to the bullpen? Or did it take him some time in the bullpen and then he, he kind of set in? Do you, do either you kind of remember that? Or? I don't remember really, but I think he was pretty early on a stud in the bullpen. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I mean, a, I, I, absolutely crazy thing to happen where you just go like Smoltz too, back and forth yep. and, and success in both. It, it's just such a rare thing. I, I always like to ask too, especially for a broadcaster that's seen as many players as, as you have. I mean, I know you have your personal favorites from, you know, just the interactions you have with humans off the field because they are human beings, as, as sometimes I think fans need to be reminded. But in terms of just the magic on the field, who was your, your favorite player to watch through the years? It could be someone current. It, it could Ooh. be someone way early on. I, I just always love to ask broadcasters that because you just see so much. You see as much as the players. Yeah. So there, there's a. So as a kid, my favorite player was Mike Schmidt. 
Um, I really loved watching Maddox pitch. Yeah. Magician. Um, I really like watching Kyle Hendricks pitch for the Cubs right now. Um, there, gosh, there's just so many, there's so many guys. I mean, I will, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else. It's hard for me to, 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 to do one because there's like, I love watching Votto, you know, like I love that. I love, <clears throat> I love watching Votto because I know the thought process that goes into it. So like, I don't know whether you saw <clears throat> and he's fun and funny. Like do you guys watch, do you guys watch Ted Lasso? Yeah. I, I've been told so many times that I need oh, to watch that. Best. Yeah. So, so Niner, this will make you giggle, but like Votto's smart and thoughtful and David Bell, his late brother, Mike, um, um, you know, Joey knew him as well, but they were watching, um, or David was watching Ted Lasso and he said to Joey, you got to watch this show. And, um, so he started to watch it and he started calling and David Bell started calling Joey Votto Roy Kent <laughs> because he's like the grumpy old guy. And Joey Votto said, I'm not Roy Kent. I'm Jamie Tart. I'm the young, I'm the young guy. And Votto this year got on, and this was during this season, and Votto got on this home run stretch. And on the show, Jamie Tart scores a goal. And his celebration is he turns around and just points at the back at his name <laughs> on the back of his jersey. And Votto hit a home run this year against yeah. the club. And he's just pointing at the yeah. name on the back of his jersey doing the Jamie Tart celebration, which, you know. Classic. Yeah. And I just, I, there's a million of them. Like watching Anthony Rizzo strike out Freddie Freeman this oh. year. I don't know. I what I love is that I still love it and I appreciate. I mean, I don't know whether this will turn Niner into get off my lawn guy, but I still would say like these guys today are so good. Like they just keep getting they they are so good. Oh my gosh, they're so good. They just keep getting better and better and better. Like, and it doesn't mean there aren't things that I don't like about what takes place on the field. I wish the ball was in play more, but Holy cow, they're so good. And I just have so much respect for how good the players are at that level. Yep. And, and I still love it. I mean, it's like you're making – I'm thinking about it now and it's making me smile. Like that's how – I still love it like that. Yeah, well, I mean, you see it firsthand, Niner, just even with your son. You're watching double-A games, how talented these dudes are in double-A. It, it's ridiculous. I never faced anything like that in double-A. Right. Maybe one an right. outlier, an outlier right. had come up and they'd have a starter that throws 97. You're like, whoa. Yeah. You remember that guy for the rest of the year. Now they've got five guys on one staff throwing 97 and double yeah. A. You're like, what the hell has happened yeah. to this game, man? It's Gr crazy. Griff saw triple digits on numerous occasions last year, you know, between That's high A and double A. It's just, it's just unbelievable. Wow. It's unbelievable in the minor yeah. leagues. Uh, so the, to wrap up, as you mentioned, getting excited for the season. Uh, you know, the Cubs, it was it was not a great year, obviously. Yeah. Uh, they are preparing for the future, but also have made it clear that they're not interested in the whole five-year plan. They go out and get Marcus Stroman. Uh, they're clearly showing some aggression. They've been tied to, obviously, we're at a stalemate now, uh, but they've been tied to some other names as well. Uh, do you feel like this team could really come out and, and compete next year? And, and how excited are you for you know what the future holds for the Cubs? 
I'm excited. I don't know whether it'll be 2022 that they're going to be a playoff contender. I'd probably lean towards not, but I do know the baseball people and trust in their vision and just look, I, I, it's challenging, right? You know, to, on the one hand, to secure a player, you got to spend a lot of money and, you know, I'm a player's guy. If you look at what the Rangers had to give Corey Seager to pay for, man, to pay for his age 37 season is probably not going to be the best thing. But if you want the player, that's what you have to do. I don't know that the Cubs are going to want to do that. Or I shouldn't say this. I don't know that the Cubs will do it. So I think that the Cubs would be more interested in Carlos Correa. I'm not saying that they will, but if they were to do it, they're not doing 10 years. Yeah. 380 million. I think that they'd be willing, you know, I think it would be more likely and I'm not even saying they'd be willing to do this, but they do, you know, six years, 240. You know what I mean? So yeah, I, I because eventually those contracts are just going to bite you. And then you get yourself in this position where it's, it's challenging. Um, they almost never age well. I mean, they, no, it's really, and as a player, so it's a player, Jeff, right? Like you, you can't sign up for knowing what, how your body's going to be in a decade. Right. Like yeah. you're, you're going to take the guaranteed money, but like you can't promise anybody I'm going to be right. the same in a decade. Right. Like you have no idea where you're going to be. No chance. And that's the crazy. Unless you're part. Nelson Cruz. There's no yeah. 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 Right. That's right. And I'm just looking up. I'm looking up on another. No, it's not. A, but like what was Scherzer's Washington deal? Um, I'm trying to think what Scherzer's. But like that. I thought it was seven. Yeah, I think so. It, his Washington deal worked out. It, I mean, like he was, he was really good. And I would say, you know, that now, again, that wasn't, that wasn't 10. Right. Nope. So, and the Mets went, you know, went short on, on their deal. Let's see here. Max Scherzer's. Um, seven year. Yeah. Seven years. And what did it end up being seven years? And I think there was a bunch of deferred in there too, but it was, yeah. So seven years, like 200 million. Yeah. It was seven to 10. I think it was seven to 10. So, you know, um, and Max Scherzer is like the closest thing to probably we've seen to like Nolan Ryan in terms of just being able to throw gas at late thirties. And he's still got another five years to catch him. <laughs> but to circle it back, like, you know, your hope is that, um, yes, some of these prospects will end up panning out. And and then when they need to, they'll they'll spend. So I still feel I'm excited because of the gig, but I also legitimately feel like, yeah, they're going to field a really good competitive team. Um coming up and it'll be a, a, an exceptionally fun run. Well, I'm really excited to tune in. Uh, as you mentioned, the regional. Yeah, congratulations, where, man. That's yeah, awesome. It's awesome. And I'm come really on out. excited to tune in. I will. You guys got to come out. Come on out to Wrigley. Let's go. Oh, you don't, to. you don't have to, you don't have to twist my arm to head out to All Wrigley. Right. 
I, that, that's, that's one of my favorite spots ever been last time I went, actually, I watched Jose Fernandez pitch, uh, you know, with, with my late father. So I would love yeah. to, to get back there. It would be a really special, uh, special occasion. So I'll take you up on that without a doubt. Absolutely. And, uh, again, congratulations on the gig. I know it's been a little bit now, but one of my favorite things to do is that on, on MLB's app, you know, in the watching app, you can bounce around. So late at night, I always put John Miller on. It's my favorite thing to do, yes. but I also yes. love going to the Cubs and putting you on. So I can't thank you enough for having your voice on our show uh, because yeah. I've listened to your voice so much through the years. And you know, you've, you've been a big part of my baseball consumption and fandom through the years. And uh, again, thank you so much. And Jeff, thanks for, for helping make this happen. Any final thoughts, Niner? You got the best. I told you he's uh boo. Good to see you again, man. Good Great talking to you, to brother. You. you stay in touch and I'll definitely take you up on that. I'll come see you. Please do. Um, it's great to see you guys. Thank you so much. I'm grateful that you guys had me on.